welcome to Freedom Decoded. I'm Demir Bentley. This is Carrie Bentley. This is our podcast where we let our hair down and show behind the scenes of our life hacking lifestyle. Um, what we do professionally is show people how to get their life together through productivity and organization. If you want to learn more about that, go check us out at lifehackmethod.com. Today, I've got a very exciting topic. We Oof. are super excited about this. Um, we have had our world rocked by a new book. And this is actually very, very rare, isn't mm -hmm. it, Kiri? It's super rare. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to us is because our focus has always been not productivity for productivity's sake, but productivity in order to create more lifestyle freedom. Yeah. And but, we've gone, oh, sorry, go ahead. But it's sort of nebulous, right? Because it's like, is that, does that mean travel freedom? Does that mean financial freedom? Like, it's been a little bit vague. Yeah, lifestyle design is interesting because I think it's common sense, but in some ways advanced common sense, sometimes counterintuitive. Uh, let me take a step back and say that we're, we're a little bit famous for saying that people should actually read fewer books. Yeah. And, and that over-consuming too many ideas in the productivity and self-development space can actually create a sense of confusion and a sense of like, oh my God, this person says this, but this other person says that, what should I do? So we actually recommend that people choose fewer books but really go deep with those ideas in those books and really make them intimately part of their life. So you will find us recommending very few books. And today we are slamming the table to recommend a new book. And it's called? Die with Zero. So the concepts on this of this book are what are so powerful. And this is what got us so jazzed about it. So you don't even have to read actually the whole book. You could listen to this podcast or listen to other podcasts that the author has done about this concept. Um, but yeah, it's about the concepts that he shares, yeah. because this is truly something that we haven't heard in a long, long time being discussed in this way. Yeah. So I mean, be very clear, we are slamming the table here right now and saying this is something you should pay attention to. Now, why? Why is it something that we think is so important? Because I think it fills an important gap in the life hack method. Um, in our four stages of life hacking, we have um, get radical clarity as stage one, stage two is get self mastery, stage three is get systems mastery to help you get work done, and stage four is design your ideal life. And in the ideal lifestyle design, there's great books and great frameworks, specifically the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss. If you haven't read that, you absolutely should. It changed our life. But I would put this right up there, Carrie, with mm -hmm. that. And, and I think a lot of people, that'll probably blow their hair back because people know how much I love that book. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is also a really appropriate book for our life stage at the moment. Now that we've already gotten our business started and we're already on that career track that we're that we have always wanted. That's sort of what the four hour work week started us off on. But now this book sort of picks up where it left off. And it gives us a really helpful framework for um, providing some more nuance to design your freedom lifestyle, and some more frameworks that are, I think, very tactical that people can use um, to help them understand how to do that. <laughs> yeah, like, how do you design your ideal life? So let's start with a quick summary of the book. Um, the, the philosophy in its essence, and I'm reading from some notes here, because I really want to get this right, is to create the most bang for your buck, right? It's really about creating memorable experiences and living life to its fullest, right? So sure, yes, we need to save for retirement, we need to provide for our loved ones, we, we want to give to our community and to charities. But but Perkins, the author of this book notes that so many people are dying with tons of extra money left over in their bank account. And that's time that they could have spent not working or or money that they could have used while they were alive to really have more experiences in the world. In other words, 
they're wasting their money and they're right. not getting life utility for right, it. Right, right. And it, yeah, some people might have immediate objections to that. He addresses all of those, let me assure you. But that's why it's called die with zero. Because in his philosophy, the goal is by the time you have reached your last day of life, you want to see that balance in your bank account reading zero. Of course, nothing ever works out perfectly just as that. But the idea is that like a lot of people are oversaving massively mm -hmm. and not using their money and time effectively or efficiently while they're actually alive. And I think that's the essence. I, I think people hear this concept and they immediately go to the edge cases. And believe yeah. me, in the book, he addresses all of the edge cases better than you could have imagined. But let's not do that. Like if you're our dear listener right now, try not to go immediately to why this wouldn't work and hear him for what he's actually saying, which is, is there a better way to spend our money to get more life satisfaction and more life utilization while we're alive? And the answer is almost resoundingly yes. And probably more important than anything is he actually has developed a really clear framework for how to make specific decisions of should I go on more vacations this year? Should I save more this year? How much should I save? What should I be spending on my health this year? Should I get life insurance? He, he offers a framework that actually answers that in pretty graphic detail. Right. Yeah. Really, really helpful. So he does lay out nine rules that you can follow to just maximize the utility that you get from uh, your time. And this is, I think, another reason why I like this book so much is he, he talks about it, not so much about money necessarily, but how money relates to time. So it's not about money for money's sake or time for time's sake. It's about how can we maximize the interplay of both of these scarce resources. I love it. I love it. And here's the thing that I love so much. I, I, I love the saying, common sense isn't so common. And that is really the essence of this book is often he'll take what we conceive to be common sense. Oh, common sense says do this. And he will spin it on its head, but convince you that that's actually true. And after reading this book and and having him lay out these arguments, often you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that I thought exactly the wrong thing here, and now I'll never think about this the same way again. Yes. So let's go through some of these rules. Some of them we'll take more time on, some of them we'll just brush past, um, because we're not trying to make this a book summary. What we really want for our community members is to, is to really come out of this podcast understanding how we think about the book, and how it applies to the life hack method, and how it really um, is a missing puzzle piece. Right, a really, really helpful puzzle piece. Um, okay, cool. So rule number one, he says the point of living is to maximize positive life experiences. Now, this is actually, I don't think that contrarian. I feel like everyone will read this and be like, oh, okay, I actually get that. Yeah, like we want to have a lot of positive life experiences while we're alive. Yeah, at, at the headline level, almost everybody would say, okay. I agree, but here's the thing. What he does immediately is then observe that most people are waiting till they retire to spend most of their money and do most of the things they wanted to do. And by that time in their mid 60s or mid 70s, they've actually lost the interest or the vitality or the stamina or the ability um, or that window in life where they actually could have done it. Simple example he gives in the book is there's a certain time of life that you're willing to quit your job, 
put everything you own into a backpack, sleep in uncomfortable beds in hostels, and travel Europe. Right. right? That's a window in your life, probably in your 20s, maybe in your 30s, but really more uh, like 20s. in your 20s. Early right? 20s. And he missed that. And he talks a lot in the book about how much he regrets missing that window because he went to Europe. By the time he went to Europe, he really didn't want a backpack anymore. And so he lamented the the, the loss, if mm-hmm. you will, of that moment in time where that window closed and it'll never open again. Yeah, he's so he never can never that. get that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, has, he had another friend that did go and took a month off work and took a small step back in his career in order to take that month off work. But now he has that lifetime memory of doing that in Europe and making all these friends and having all these experiences. And he values that much more highly than that month of work that he missed. Yeah, and, and he says in the book that that... There's no discernible difference between the guy who took the month off of work and him at this point in their career, meaning he caught up. Whatever he lost was more than, you know, was caught up for. And this is what I think is interesting about you, especially, Demir, is how you sort of embody this principle because – you took a year off of college. I took way more than a year off of college. I don't even know how many. I guess <laughs> took so I, much time. I guess you took more than a year. I, that's news to me. But basically, that's something that everybody was telling you. Like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Like, you're a top student at UC Berkeley, and you're just going to, like, hit pause? Like, are you ever going to go back? I, people were really scared for you. They were freaked out. And you took a whole year off and just went to Italy. <laughs> I took a year off and went to Italy. I also took a year off and went to Hawaii. Right. So I took a bunches of years off. Um, but, you know, zooming away from this, I think we could all agree, it just as an example of the utility of money, because I think the most powerful realization in this book is that no matter how much money you have, the older you get, the less utility you're getting out of it. Now, you might say, well, well you know, if, I think people make arguments like, well, you know, you could be a pretty healthy 70-year-old. So let's take this to the extremes. If you're a 98-year-old billionaire on life support, how much are those billions of dollars doing for you at that point? Like nothing. It might as well not even be there for the amount that you can actually enjoy it. Yeah. Right? And so there's this irony of life where the younger you are, when you're young, you have all this time, all this youth, all this vitality and no money. Right. And then as you're older, you've got all the money, but you don't have the youth and vitality. And, and even your preferences have changed in important ways where even if you can do something, this is the important part, you don't really want to do it anymore. Right. And this is the thing, though. I think that a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm young or I'm building my career and so I don't have the time. I don't have the money to do it. And I would say um, you probably have more time and money than you think to make things happen. So it's sort of like how you have this fine china sitting in your cabinet from your wedding day, but you're like, I'm only gonna bring this out for special occasions. It's like, how many times have you actually ever brought that out? There's always an excuse why not to. Yeah. Always. But then you're gonna be this like 70 year old person who's never used their fine china and what you're gonna pass it to your kids, like, sorry, your kids are not gonna care about your fine china. They're gonna give it to Goodwill. Yeah, that's really sad. So like you should just like use the fine china and apply that concept to all the other areas of your life too. So that leads to the second rule. And you'll notice that we're actually skipping around because we think the the sort of order that he puts his rules in is a little bit weird. So rule number seven that I think follows directly from that concept is that you should actually specifically design your life in a way where you're intentionally planning around the seasons of your life. So, for example, you know, there's the period of your life where you're young 
and single and you've got tons of vitality and energy. You might be broke, but like you're, you've got this willingness in that time of your life to put yourself through some pretty uncomfortable situations and still have fun doing it, right? Then you couple up, you, you know, as a couple with no kids, then maybe you have kids, then maybe you're in midlife, then you're in the middle of your career, then you're over the hill, then you're elderly. He, he argues that in each of these phases, there's like sort of a perfect match. So let me give you an example. Um, going to Paris and walking the streets and going to the museums, and going to the Louvre versus climbing Machu Picchu, right? And I think a lot of people, when they're young, I made this mistake. When I was young, I went and did a lot of things that in retrospect, I'll have plenty of time to do when I'm older and I'll enjoy a lot when mm-hmm. I'm older. Going to the opera, going to theater, walking the streets of Paris, having great meals. Like these are things that I could just as easily do at 70 or 80 as I could do at 20. Now, do, am I going to want to hike Machu Picchu? when I'm in my 70s or 80s? Clearly not. I mean, hopefully, (laughs) you know, I'll be the exception to the rule, but the rule would say no. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Matching that. There's a lot of, and you think about people in your life that do this well. There are oftentimes people that they're doing things and you look at them and it's crazy. I have a friend who's, um, has a, performs at a high level at her company, but she has never given up her ballroom dance hobby. I mean, just made it more of, an, of a hobby. It's almost like a second career for her. Yeah. But it's really impressive. And a lot of people look at her like, what are you doing spending all this time and energy and money on this? And she's like, well, I'm in my 20s. This is the time. Yes. If I'm going to do this, it's got to be now. Because even in my 30s and my 40s, like my desire for training at this level and competing in ballroom dancing is going to be massively lower. Yes. And I might want to make life decisions like having kids that would then preclude from me from being able to invest the kind of time. Right. Um, so I think what's so beautiful about this, and this really is, I think, you know, in red flashing lights, the big takeaway for me and what has completely rearranged my thinking, it's had me really intentionally go back to my lifestyle design and and divide my lifestyle design, not just into a vague vision, like here's the person I'd like to be and here's the kind of things I would like to do and more bucket it into 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Like what are the things I wanna do in my life and where is the most appropriate place to put that thing mm-hmm. such that I can derive the most life enjoyment from it and that I don't miss any of these important windows of opportunity. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Rule number nine. So we're jumping again with the rules. But rule number nine is take big risks early, not later. This is a great one because you always think again, like, OK, let's de-risk your life. Let's make it simpler and better when you're younger. And then once you retire or at some vague nebulous future point, you can be this crazy person that takes risks. And, and let me pause and say, the logic there can seem sound. It's like, oh, but then I'll have all this money. Oh, but then I'll be financially secure and I'll own my home and then I can take the risk. So what's wrong with that? Well, I mean, the basically the younger that you are, the more risks you should be taking and the bolder you should be because you know, you're, you probably aren't going to be even willing or able to go for those big risks once you are older. You know, or the thing about being young is that you can take a big risk and fall on your face and you've still got a lot of youth and vitality to make up for that. I mean, let's look at my life as an example. Um, You know, I've had multiple like careers and none of them did very badly, but I've also had some big belly flops, like some giant belly flops. And that was great because I took these huge risks. I moved between not just careers, but entire sectors. I've worked in government, I've worked in technology, I've worked in finance until I finally found what I really was meant to be working on in coaching and education. And so what's great 
great about that is by taking those big risks younger, I was able to find my way to where I was really supposed to be, and which means I'm gonna get more life satisfaction and utility long-term. Contrast that with if I played it safe, you know, and stayed in my first career and just saved that money, I would be a deeply unhappy person. Yeah, and so I think a lot of people um, can apply this to like the, the question of, should I be starting my own business right now? Or should I leave the job that I'm unhappy in right now? And so this question or this rule might help you make a decision on that. And it's gonna be customized, right? right. I, what I love about this principle is he doesn't say one size fits all. He gives you a framework where I could put 10 people through this framework and they can make 10 very different decisions based on their circumstances, their abilities, their preferences. And so that's what I love the most about this framework is it's not one size fits all. Right. Rule three, of course, he's gotta have a rule that talks about this, aim to die with zero. I love this. Mostly meaning your money. Yeah, so why die with zero? I mean, what's the point, Carrie, of, of dying with zero? I mean, I, I it's, the point is that you have achieved this ideal balance in your life between experiences and um, work. And responsibilities. Responsibilities and doing stuff you don't want to do with like experiences and loving your life and doing stuff you do want to do. And I think here's the thing. The die with zero thing, I think he chose a great title because it's controversial and gets people's attention and maybe even gets them feeling resistance or objection. But ultimately, I think everybody could agree with what you just said. Like, don't we want to finish our life feeling that the balance between doing the things we had to do and doing the things we wanted to do was as good as we could possibly have made it? That's the concept of, of die with zero. Right. Right. And, and now edge case that I'm not going to get into, but he covers really well in the book is this idea of like, what if I run out of money early? Well, there's insurance for that. That's there's called an annuity. annuity. Yeah. There's yeah. annuities you can get for that. There, he covers all, all of these concerns. And it makes you realize that you are sort of just saving for saving's sake. When you're like, oh, I need a lot of money to retire on. All these financial calculators say I need a lot of money. It's like he goes through the math with you and he's like, you actually probably need a lot less money than you think because you aren't really spending all that much money when you're old because you don't want to do anything. Yeah. You just want to stay at home and enjoy yourself. And when you're younger is when you could really use that money and spend it on experiences. I love the part of the book where he shows like how little people spend. So yeah. he, he actually goes through and shows that when you get into your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, no matter how much money you have, you just spend less and less and less and less of it because your preferences change and you're happier to stay home or you can't go out. And so I just think this idea of, I'll just wrap it up by saying you can insure against almost yeah. all of the questions that you have. Long-term um, care insurance. Well, I need long-term care. I don't want to put that on my kids. Insure against that. Um, I want to make sure I have uh, enough money. Get an annuity. There's almost, you know, in, he, he makes the argument in the book, don't insure yourself. Don't be your own insurer. There's big insurance companies that can do that. Yeah. Use that financial mechanism so that you can actually put the bulk of your wealth towards living your life, not insuring against some scenario that you can't insure against. Right, right. Awesome. And that leads really easily into rule number five, because um, what people are probably shouting right now is, but what about my kids? Yes. What you, about leaving you money? You terribly and selfish Why would person. you spend all your money and leave nothing to your kids? And actually he's like, well, the current, rule is, well, you have to wait till you die and then all of your kids and your descendants get all of your wealth that you've created. He's like, that's actually really selfish. And I read that and I was like, wait a second, that's selfish? How is that selfish? He's like, yeah, because think about it. Most people at the age of their inheritance, they're about 60 years old. They don't really need the money then. They've already built their career. They're probably saving for their own inheritance to pass to their kids at that point. When could they have used that money, that inheritance money? 
And they're getting their, their life started. In their late 20s and early 30s. So he, his perspective is you should be giving money to your kids and giving money to charities much earlier, actually while you're still alive, and just giving it to them at that point and calling it their inheritance um, so that they can have it at the time of their lives where they can get the most utility from it. This is, we're going to get into this, but this has changed a lot about how we think about investing in our kids and stuff like that. But I, I think this is so crucial, this idea of like, if you're going to give money to somebody, whether it's a charity or your kids or even a family member, give it to them now. There's a really poignant story in the book where he talks about a woman who actually inherited a pretty big sum of money from her parents, but inherited it in her early 60s, like late 50s, early 60s, and was just filled with this sense of like, wow, there were 20 years of my life that were so hard. And if I'd gotten even a fraction of this money earlier it would have made my life so much better. And now I don't need it. So I've got this like, yay, I got this big, big lump of money that hit me, but it feels like almost a missed opportunity. Like a waste. Yeah. And so, and what were her parents concerned about? Well, they were concerned that maybe they would need that money in their old age. And instead of getting an annuity or doing something to make sure that they would never run out of money, they sort of just hoarded all of their They insured themselves. They, they, they were insured their themselves. own insurance company. Awesome. Okay, for the sake of speed, I'll just go to uh, rule number four, which is to use all planning tools that are available. And, you know, this is something that you'll get from reading the book. It's just to, I think what I really got from this rule was this idea that if you really want to be successful at lifestyle design, you need to be willing to look at some uncomfortable truths about life, yeah. right? You need to really be able to consider your own death and when it is likely to happen. I actually went through a calculator online um, that asked me all of these questions. It's actually the calculator that insurance companies use to calculate your expected life expectancy. And I was I actually realized that I was fun when I started it, but as I was asking the questions, I got a lot of anxiety yeah. and, and a lot of fear came up, but I persevered and it gave me a life expectancy, by the way, that was exactly when my grandfather died, um, the same year, and 92 years old. So I think I'm feeling okay about that. But there was a moment there where I really had to spend a moment really looking at and contemplating my likely death date. And that's uncomfortable. And you have to be willing to look at that to be able to back in and say, okay, if I am likely to die at this point, and looking at my grandfather and what he, he's a great template. What it, what was he doing in his 70s, 80s, and 90s? And what shape was he in that is likely to be the shape that I am in and the things that I want to do and helps me understand like, well, okay, how much money do I need to do that? Yeah. Example, he loved to just go play cards with his friends at the local senior center, right? Not very expensive. He didn't like going out to dinners. He he had the money to, he just didn't want to. Yeah, he didn't want to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you'll die, you'll lose health and vitality and some of the windows of opportunities that close will never be reopened. You need to be willing to look at these truths yeah. to be able to really design and optimize your life utility. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's actually really exciting when you think about it. I downloaded this app um, that shows me the number of weeks and days and whatever until I die or the expected date that I'll die. Um, and it's really cool to look at because at first you're like, oh, oh no, like, I don't want to think about that. That's so morbid. But then you look at it, I'm like so excited. Wow, I have like this many more weeks where I can be doing what I want with my life. It's really motivating. It's not necessarily exciting. It's more like motivating and freeing to be like, oh yeah, like I need to make sure I'm packing my weeks yeah. and my months full with stuff that I want to be doing. And you know, for me, I'm 10 years older than you. And so for me, a big thing I've been hung up on a lot is like, oh, I don't want to die before Carrie. I don't want to die before Carrie. But 
actually what this book has done is switch that and been like, no, I want to live the life with Carrie while we're young and pack that full of the memories that we want to have so that if I do probably invariably die before Carrie, the years that she's missing me are years that she's like in her 80s, right? Which I'm not saying... Please don't take this to be some kind of ageist remark of like, you're, you know, people who are in any of these have less intrinsic value. I simply mean that Carrie will have like these tremendous memories of me and, a, and this gratitude of the life that we live together rather than feeling like we were trying to hang on to one extra year in our 80s or 90s. Right, exactly. Yeah, we want to have those memories. I think that's one of the concepts from the book I love the most is um, you're going to retire on your memories. You don't Oof. necessarily retire on your money. Oof. When you're older, when you're retired, you want to look back and think, wow, I really spent my life in an amazing way. In fact, we spend so much time people-pleasing and worrying about what other people think of us and how we're spending our time and are we doing good enough. But the only judge that really matters is yourself, but on your deathbed. Yes. Are you going to look back at your life and say, yes. I did good. I spent my time and my money and my energy the way I wanted to. You know, I've said this before, and this is weird. Like, I don't want to die, right? So uh, I want to live. I, you know, I fear death, the whole thing. But I've told Carrie before, like, listen, if I walk out tomorrow and I get hit by a bus, I don't want you to feel one bit bad. I want you to tell people at my funeral, like, Demir lived an amazing life, right? So even if I got clipped early... I feel really good about how I've invested my time and spent my life so far. Um, but I think this gives me an even better framework yeah. for how to optimize my remaining years to just amp that feeling up. Why don't we skip number six yeah. and then go straight to rule number eight, which I think is a good stopping point before we pivot to some how this other stuff. is changing yeah. our life, right? Um, yeah, so rule number eight is know when to stop. Mm. And what, what, what he means by know when to stop is know when to stop working. Yeah and actually retire. Um, granted, the author is somebody who made a lot of money, I believe, in the stock market. Energy trading, I believe. Energy trading, okay. So um, he is very wealthy, and he has a lot of friends that are very wealthy and have chosen to keep working even after they've accumulated billions and billions of dollars. I think that's such an important point. This is a really important point <laughs> to emphasize here. It's like, for those people, it's obvious that they are continuing to work for work's sake. Um, so maybe not all of us are billionaires and we might not all be in that particular boat, but the principle remains. Well, I think for him and his peer group, his peer group are making so much money that that they couldn't actually spend it faster than that money accrues more wealth in the stock market, right. right? So you have this problem with people who are so rich that even though they're trying to give it away, because the stock market is continually growing that money, there is this like escape velocity of being absurdly rich where you just get richer and richer and richer. And you can't actually get poorer. Yeah, and his point is, why would you keep working if you've already achieved that escape velocity? Why not stop earlier and become a philanthropist like Bill Gates? I think Bill Gates is a great example of somebody who stopped working with a lot of prime energy left in the tank and has made a huge impact on the world through his philanthropy. And I think uh, Perkins would say, that was a great decision. He would probably say even he should have stopped even earlier because mm -hmm. even Bill Gates is struggling to spend the amount of money that he's exactly. accumulated. Now, now back that into maybe more normal people, yeah. right? I think there's 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 a point here where I disagree that's important. Yeah. It's pretty clear that he might have enjoyed his work to a certain degree, but he felt that his work was just something that made money for him. And so he was very happy to put it down and go live his life, which is great decision for him. What I've seen by coaching people in their um, mid-60s, mid-70s, right, is that a lot of these people who retired early 
actually lost a really important sense of connectivity to the rest of the world yeah. and a sense of meaning. And so one of the things I see more and more and more is that people who retire actually decide to go back to some form of work, not because they need the money, but because they want the significance and they want the connection and they want the meaning that yeah. work can give. So. I actually have come to a bit of an opposite realization from the author, and this is an important point of divergence. To me, what this has made me realize is that in a weird way, because I do something that I could keep doing into my mid-70s, it's actually made me feel like I should claim more of my youth, as it were, um, even though I'm in midlife, but whatever, I feel young, I claim more of my youth to living and capitalizing on experiences that I can only have when I'm young because I feel like I probably want to continue coaching and helping people and, and I'll need and want that significance later in my life. So it's actually created the opposite um, feeling for me. Instead of feeling like I need to stop working at some point, it's actually made me stop fantasizing about early retirement and focus more on mini retirements. Right, right. And this is interesting because it so well aligns with our existing life hack method philosophy. It's like our clients come to us so that they can create a sustainable workflow. Yeah. Very rarely we have a client say, I hate my job. I hate everything I do. I don't like the impact I'm making, nothing. Um, those people usually switch out of that career pretty quickly. Mostly people just want to do what they're doing, but in a sustainable way where they're not burned out all the time. But they're loving their life. And what we've managed to create in our business is a sustainable workflow. We could have very easily created a coaching business that was too hard for you to keep doing decades later that you would have wanted to stop doing right away. Exactly. We have so many friends in this space that cannot wait to stop going on these speaking tours because they're exhausting and the lifestyle is brutal. And they would much rather have a lifestyle like ours where we have very minimal coaching that we're actually doing live that that our that our time is committed to and we spend most of our time managing our community which we can grow at scale totally totally so um let's talk about how this is changing our life right now because i will say probably more than any book since the four-hour work week this is having a instant and immediate impact where I am changing how I'm spending my money. I'm changing how I'm prioritizing. It's just changed. I would say almost everything in, in our relationship, me and you, I'm making different decisions as a father, you know, as a business owner in my own life. Like I, I'm making so many different decisions because of this framework. So let's go through a couple of those, right? Yeah. Why don't you kick us off? I think it's, first of all, making it so much easier for us to say no to commitments. Like saying no is like a muscle you got to practice. And we're already pretty good at it. But um, usually we try to justify it by some by some means. Um, and now we're just like, oh, no, we're saying no just because we want to say no. Yeah. Not because we have some excuse or some reason why we can't take on that responsibility, but more just like, yeah, we don't want to do that. So we're saying no. Exactly, exactly. Saying no to interviews, summits, podcasts, licensing agreements. I mean, this is real money and people that we would theoretically like to work with. But if it's not lined up to our big champagne moment for the year, our big vision for the year, it's just making it even easier, this framework to say no. Um, another thing is, uh, many people will know we, we uh, for the last five years, have taken one month off as a mini retirement every single year. Uh, that's from the four-hour work week, by the way. Now we've upped it to two. So this year is the first year that we're taking two months off. We're taking uh, April, all of April, to go spend time with family. And we're taking all of basically mid-July to mid-August uh, mid to go to Greece and be with couples and, and be with we'll friends. And probably end up taking most of December off too because of the holidays. It's a slow, it's, it's a slow season. So that's interesting because it's really made me look at the time we spend as a family 
not working, the time we spend traveling. I mean, you and I are doing one of the things that we're doing that's fun right now is we do a yearbook every year. Um, and that yearbook, looking back on the on on the last year, has just made us realize that these moments when we travel together are this concentration of memory making and bonding as a family. And part of us is like, yeah, we told ourselves we could only do it once a year, but like, why not do it twice? Like if we can, why not make that allocation? And yeah, that means we'll probably be able to do incrementally fewer things in the business and maybe we'll make a little bit less money because of it, but it's a trade we're happy to make. Yeah, and this is something that's um, so key to us because there's this, I know people say they're not interested in hustle culture anymore, but they kind of are yeah. because yeah. there's this pressure from the universe where it's like, well, you've got to get the accolades as soon as possible. You've got to make the money and grow as soon as possible. Everyone in entrepreneurship is like talking about how fast they grew their yeah. business as if it's some kind of badge of honor. Like I went from zero to 10 figures in one year. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. So for us, it's less about looking at that hustle culture and that like desire to do everything now and faster and more looking at like, well, we can always be working, like you said. We can just we can get there. We'll we'll hit those milestones, maybe just at a slightly slower rate, but we'll have these amazing mini retirements in the meantime. But, but and here's the irony about that, isn't there? When we make that commitment that we're willing to make less money to have the enjoyment, has that actually happened the last five years? No, ironically, no. <laughs> no. Our business is growing at like a, a rate that both of us are kind of shocked by, and we're like, wow, this is. It just continues to grow much faster than we thought. Which is funny because I think you do think intuitively you have to be willing to make that trade. Like I, I'm willing to make less money. But the thing I see about people who invest in themselves and their happiness is actually they're more calm, more rested, more – they're enjoying their life. So they're having better ideas and they're actually succeeding better at business. That's just my perspective. Yeah. What else, Carrie? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, too, we have young kids at the moment. Our daughter's three and our baby is almost three months. So we're even more clear now just how precious that first that first even four years of childhood is and how much more time we want to be spending with our kids. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that will continue to like even until they're about, I would say, 12 and they want to start like doing things with their friends yeah. and really getting away from us. It's like this is our time to be with them where mm -hmm. they think we are the bomb um, and we need to be capitalizing on that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, because um, again, I am 10 years older than you, um, it's really made me realize that I can spend much more money on anything related to preventative care and health. Um, just realizing that a dollar on, spent on preventative care is worth $10 on palliative care, right? So, so, and by the time something has happened in your, like in your body and it manifests in a full-blown breakdown, there's only, you can treat it, but you'll never really get back to that vibrant health that you had before. You'll just sort of like beat it, but you'll always be at this like new lower level. And so for me, I already had that perspective of like, hey, it, I want to invest in my health. But this is sort of like put that on steroids. Like now, whatever my budget might have been last year for preventative care, prehab, and just staying healthy, it's like five or 10 times more now. So now I'm looking at anything in my life, like having a cook, a prep cook come and make healthy meals for us, um, you know, investing in exercise equipment. I have a personal trainer. These are the types of things I used to say, oh, Demir, are you That's spending so extravagant. Oh, you know, it's so much. And now my thinking has completely changed. I'm like, no, this is a deal. This yeah. is an absolute steal. I, I would include in that category anything that contributes to having a good night of sleep. Um, so we recently invested in those like water cooling pads. Yeah, I'll give the exact brand so that people know. <laughs> I'm telling you, gang, the Doc Pro Sleep System from Sleep.me. 
we got the two-sided where we can both control our temperature best investment we've made in years in our sleep and in our comfort yeah yeah exactly these kinds of things we just say yes to now um and i would i would say um for me a big takeaway from this book has also been balance in all forms because i feel like you can just take anything to way way too far so the idea behind like peak performance is that like well you can optimize your body even more you can get more focus you can get more like more productivity out of every second of your day and i'm sort of bringing the balance back to like hey if i can get four good hours a day in i'm good with that um and i'm gonna spend the rest of my time doing stuff i actually want to do i don't necessarily only want to be drinking green shakes and taking neurotropics. Like I, exactly. I'm i good with my level of productivity. I'm not anywhere close to burnout. So my goal is just to keep that going and keep that balance. You know, he says something really controversial in the book that I actually think was something that I had to wrap my head around. But he was like, listen, if you enjoy having a cigarette every once in a while, right? After like at a party or whatever. And let's just say that that's gonna take one or two years off of that 92 years old. So you're gonna die at 90 instead of 92, right? But that's something that you decide that brings a tremendous amount of enjoyment to your life. Personally, I don't think it's a choice I would make, but if you decide that that's what you really enjoy and really wanna do, then he would actually argue like, do it because you know, you're know you front loading the enjoyment today and you're only robbing yourself of like, like a pretty small incremental loss of years that frankly, you're not even at your best, right? right. Which is super controversial because yes, right, right now we live in a space of live as long as you can, live as long as you can. But I think what you just nailed, Carrie, and I really wanna underline it for people is that we live in this culture of it's okay to suffer today. Suffer for your work. Don't eat the things that you wanna eat, right? Yeah. Like, you know. Be in a, basically yeah. be in a permanent state of suffering. That is how you should be living. So that you can live longer, but it's like, but you're just elongating what? A, like a state of being that's like, what's the quality of that life? And so I think when you argue for balance, it's multifaceted. It's like balance of responsibilities yeah. to free time and things you wanna do. It's balance of, you know, doing some things today that frankly might not be the very, very healthiest thing that you can do, but bring you a lot of satisfaction and joy and accepting that that might take a little bit off the end of your life, but that's a trade that you're willing to make in order to have a sense of ease and balance in your life. Yeah, I think ease and balance and also letting the letting go of the need to be the best at everything. Yeah. Because that sort of goes along with this idea of like, be the peak of everything that you go after. Peak performance, peak exercise. It's like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm gonna find an optimal way of doing this for me that I'm happy with. That again, on my deathbed, I'm gonna look back and be like, yeah, that was good. That was a good level. And I'm gonna be happy with that balance. Yeah, I love it. I mean, what would you give in your late 80s to just be in your body in your 40s and take a walk? And just go, just go take a walk and like have great knees and like enjoy being out and have stamina and have like cardiovascular right. function. It, and it's really infused me with a sense of, dude, it's okay to just be done with work for the day and go for a walk because you're in your 40s, man. Like your knees are good. Your feet is, right, are good. Right, my you, knees are good. <laughs> you you want to take a walk, like go take that walk. Now that actually could be optimization because I think right now it's like, no, that's not optimized. That's wasted time. Or if we're taking the walk, could we also be like, on the phone and like calling or, a person. Like, instead of a walk, make it a hundred deadlifts. 
<laughs> totally, totally. So let's talk about our big takeaways and then close out for today. Um, I think for me, um, life hacking to me is about getting more and more with less and less inputs, right? Mm-hmm. Not just at work, but in life. And I think I th- uh, we we actually already thought about this a lot. And even after running this framework, I think we're very happy with the decisions we made. Um, but I feel like this book creates a framework where you can take it from 480 to 4K, yeah. right, in resolution, where you can take it from like vague visions of like, oh, I sort of want to be this person and allocate my time and energy this way to here's exactly what I need to be doing. And I feel 100% confident in that decision. Right. Or even like, hey, I have this dream of doing X, Y, Z. Like we've had this dream of living on a catamaran with our daughters and sailing the Mediterranean. It's like, okay, but that can't be just a dream. That's got to happen in a specific time period. Yeah. I can tell you that probably the two years, two to three years period where that is actually viable for us to do it. And we can start planning on doing it now. That's what's so great about it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this vague future thing. Like again, I'm in my 40s and I don't, I don't, I, I don't say that to say that I'm old. I don't feel old at all. And some people who are listening to this will probably be like, dude, you don't know how young you are. And I get that. You look at that and you say, I'm in my 40s right now. And then that's followed by my 50s. Am I going to want to keep futzing around on a boat like in my 60s? Right. You know, and you start to think about these things and like, well, plus the girls might be too old by that. Yeah. Like, are they going to think it's exciting to be on a boat? Am I going to have the desire and the and the willingness to be on a boat right now? It's an exciting vision for me. There's no guarantee that in my late 50s or 60s, I'm going to want to do the boat thing. It really takes the urgency around it and and makes it to where I'm not putting it off. I'm thinking, no, how can we get this in in the next two to three years? Yeah. And I think another thing that um, the another big takeaway is that. The book creates a framework for how to spend your money in order to get maximum life utility and not just be saving money for the sake of saving it, but spending it in a responsible way that you don't feel like is irresponsible. So a lot of times if you've grown up, um, you know, like most of us, it's spending money is bad, saving money is good, and it's sort of this black and white, but he offers a, a gray space where it's like, here's how you can spend and have it go to the maximum life utility. What I love the most, and and I'll close with this, gang, I really would love you to get into this and learn this framework because I think what you'll find is that all of the edge cases you think that would negate it don't. And that when you put your factors into this, you come out with a very personalized answer that's personalized to you. So you may disagree with all of Perkins's decisions that he made when he put his preferences and his factors in. But what's great is I come out with very different outputs from the author of the book, but with using the same framework. So I think he's created a framework that is not just, I live my life this way, you should live your life yeah. this way. It leaves a ton of room for you putting in your own preferences. And what I love about it the most, and the reason I'm banging the table about it, is no matter who you are, no matter what your preference is, this is a framework that can help you optimize into who you are and who you want to be. And for lifestyle design, that is so crucial. Yeah. All right, gang. Well, listen, if you're a member of Lifehack Tribe, in the coming month, we're actually going to do a training on this where we're going to go through some really cool exercises that I've designed. We're going to talk about creating lists of things that you want to do by phase in your life, which is going to be so cool. We're going to talk about um, some of the habits that you want to start um, and doing some really cool exercises where you embody the 80-year-old version of you or the 90-year-old version of you and then look back and see how that might change or affect some of your decisions. So if you haven't checked out Lifehack Tribe, check out a link in the description below and you can learn more about what our community is and how we do it. And if you are in Lifehack Tribe, make sure to come to that training. Thanks for listening, folks.